Welcome to episode 74 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the Observer's Handbook Giveaway episode. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers. That means we do astronomy just for the fun of it. And this podcast is how we share all the fun of amateur astronomy with you. How was your week, Shane? It was okay. Um, weather wasn't okay. Uh, we the had a lot of cloud. Pits. Yeah. And, and our warm weather has left us behind. We were mm. quite, a, quite a bit above seasonal temperatures, um, mm -hmm. like plus seven, which Celsius, which is unheard of for this time of the year. Yep. But uh, now we're more seasonal, probably. What, what's the high today? Maybe minus 15 or something? I'm not even sure. I don't know. I saw that it's going to minus 24 without the wind chill this afternoon. So there's Ooh. that. Okay, so I should shovel last night's snow before that comes, I guess. <laughs> I think there's only an inch down. So, but uh, yeah, I kind of, well, I kind of wish we would get more snow. The wind really blew in my backyard, so Ooh. I need to take care of that. But uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Did you? Sounds like you you did some though. I didn't do anything. I don't think hardly. Yeah, I I did very little observing, but I was able to get in, I think, pretty much all that we could this week. Um, if you did anything, was, you maximized your observing time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I can't remember now. I think it was Monday night. Uh, I went out. The, the forecast like for seeing and transparency wasn't very good, but there wasn't supposed to be a lot of cloud cover. Um, and uh, so I thought I'd I try to get out and do a little observing. So I took out the Frankenscope, um, the, the 60 millimeter uh, by 910 millimeter focal length, TASCO, mm -hmm. old telescope. Um, and I got about 20 minutes in uh, before the clouds rolled in and just, you know, enclosed the sky basically. That was probably it. Week. Like that's yeah, probably yeah. the only clear sky we had because I don't even recall seeing any stars this week. So yeah, you're yeah. much better better observer than I am, at least today. Yeah, well, you know, it was just uh, <laughs> I I knew that the forecast wasn't good for the rest of the week, so yeah. I, I figured if I had a short window Monday, I would try to take it. Um, so the purpose of that session um, was to revisit the clusters that we talked about last week, um, mm -hmm. starting in Taurus and working working up through Perseus. Um, but what I wanted to do, I, I've had this light pollution filter that I've never used. Um, what is I it? Bought, All it says well, in the notes, so that people know, we have show notes. I, I'm a bit of a writer, and I'll write tons and tons. This week, Shane wrote, tested light pollution filter. <laughs> That's yeah, Shane's yeah. notes. My yeah. notes are three pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Which I'm is awesome. A... Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm here with, with bated breath. Yes, yes. So uh, part of it is just so you don't steal my thunder. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, um, no, I, I do better with just light words and no, no, good uh, stuff. No more, more ad lib. But um, anyway, this thing. So it's not like a revolutionary filter. Um, this is uh, what I have is the Orion Sky Glow filter. Oh, I've always wanted to try one of those. Did was it used? Did you buy it from Orion? Uh, I bought it from that Scope Essentials that's going out of business. Okay. Um, so like, they've always intrigued me. Uh, Bader has one. I think it's the Moon and Sky Glow or something. I own like that. that one. It's very okay. subtle. I like it. Don't get me wrong. Like it. It is very subtle. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the same class of filter. Um, okay. As far as I know, maybe there's some variations, but I, I think they're pretty similar. Okay. Um, I, so I think I got this thing for like $25 brand new. Um, Two inch or one and a quarter? It's one and a quarter. Okay. Um, but that'll go which, well with your little Borg and some other stuff that you have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest, from my backyard, I, I don't know the last time I ever used a two inch eyepiece in the backyard. Um, hmm. I usually just use the, the inch and a quarter because um, I don't know why, to be honest, maybe because I'm usually looking at double stars and planets. So you know, the wide fields don't intrigue me as much as, you know, uh, high contrast, crisp view. So yeah. anyway, um, I didn't get uh, the qualifier here is I didn't get a great opportunity to test mm. it. So my little bit of a review here should be taking, should be taken with a grain of salt. I need to give it more time. Um, but the initial, the initial thoughts that I have, 
is it, it highlights why I don't like to use filters. <laughs> okay. And it's, I can't, I, I, I just like a natural view and it frustrates me when colors are changed uh, in what I'm looking at. So that's why I typically don't like to use planetary mm. filters um, mm -hmm. because obviously those throw the color way off. Um, but I felt like with this little sky glow filter, um, the stars all of a sudden turned blue. You know, a lot of the stars oh. were on the bluish spectrum. Okay. Um, as opposed to just like mostly a natural white. Yeah. Um, so that bothered me a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, while, while these few uh, filters aim to, uh, you know, take out some of the, like the unnatural light and some of that sky glow. Yeah. Um, they do also take out some starlight. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, you know, nature of the beast. So um I didn't do AB comparisons that night, you know, in terms of filter in and then take a look at the same object without the filter. Mm -hmm. But because I had been looking at these clusters a few times recently, um, you know, I felt like I had a pretty good memory of what the view looked like without the filter. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly in Malot 20, that large open cluster kind of in the middle of Perseus there. Yeah, this is the um, Perseus OB1 association. It's like all the bright stars that are right around Alpha Persei, which is the brightest star right in the middle of Perseus. Yeah, very easy to locate and um, you know, Love an it. amazing wide field view there. If I have, have a sketch it. of this somewhere. <laughs> I should send yeah, it. We can tweet it. Yeah, yeah should, I got a sketch should. somewhere of this. Yeah. Yeah. So without the filter, I felt like there is um like there's obviously all of those bright stars that are, you know, amazing to look at, but Beyond those light stars, there's a little bit of a star cloud I felt behind that almost, or as a part of that, you know, that um, there was like a lot of just dim, almost nebulosity, but it, you know, I, be I felt like it was more of a star cloud um, and, and I completely lost that with the light pollution filter, the sky glow thing. Um, so that also sort of, you know, left me thinking, I don't know if I like this filter, um, but 20 minutes of observing it's not enough time to really give an honest, mm. um, you know, critique of this thing. What mm -hmm. I would like to do is test it out again from the backyard, but mm -hmm. instead of looking at open clusters, um, look at, you know, maybe some nebulas like M42 would be a great candidate just because of how bright it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe some galaxies like, uh, M31, uh, you know, another fairly bright object just to see, you know, what, the filter does in terms of enhancing that view if it does mm -hmm. at all and mm -hmm. uh, and then make my decision whether or not it stays in the kit or if this becomes a a for sale item i'm not too hmm. sure but. interesting that's interesting yeah. um yeah. i get it i gotta admit uh i've always wanted to try that filter I, I wouldn't mind trying it at some point in time i i own a two inch um beta moon and sky glow i think i think i own another one and so um, that are, and they're both very subtle. I feel like, I don't know if the moon and sky glow is also called the IR cut, but I have the IR cut one as well. Okay. If they're not the same filter, I can't, I can't remember. I have uh, quite a few two inch nebula filters that that is the one thing uh, that I pretty much have, have all my bases covered on. Have the, um, I have an O3 H beta um, and uh, I have a UHC by Bader as well. And then I have the moon and sky glow. And I can't remember, I have two, two of these Bader ones. Um, I think there might be three, but I, I, three or four, but I just, I just have the two that kind of were, um, they don't, they don't cut as much of the light out. Uh, and there's one that's amazing. Um, you put it in and you almost forget it's there. It gives just a very small greeny, cast to it so so things get just a little bit tweaked to the green and the night sky kind of looks a little bit green anyway at least in my eye so um but for the for the most part you get used to it very quick and then you you'll forget the filter is even in there um mm. and it just gives an edge it i think this might be what you're looking for i should loan it to you and it it just gives that edge i think that that you're looking for i find like with with more like the broadbands and the uhc or ultra high contrast filters the what these are is these are uh, what we call nebula filters uh, or light pollution filters and they allow um, the nebula uh, to cut through uh, into your into your eye um, while at the same time rejecting 
both background sky glow um, from background stars as well as uh, any light pollution or, or a great deal of the light pollution. It doesn't replace getting to dark skies. Uh, it just increases the contrast between the sky uh, and, the, and the object that you're looking at. I, I've never found they work very well on galaxies, um, but they do work fairly well on, on nebula. But I, I, like you, was looking for something that, that would just give a subtle improvement, especially from city skies. And I found, I think it is the, the moon and sky glow. Um, that one uh, I did like. Uh, and, and I think it's pretty inexpensive too. I, I don't know what it is now, but when I bought it years ago, it was about $50 American, I think. Uh, it could be double that by this point. I bought it when it first came out. And I was surprised. It's optical glass, beautiful coatings, came in a, I think the, my only criticism of the baiters is their, their cases are a bit large and awkward. Is you it know, the filter and, drawer that the, that it yeah, came the filter yeah, drawer. Yeah. Is, I, I don't yeah. care for that, that, I, yeah. I feel like the filter case could be redone better. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to chime in uh, and maybe I'll tweet out a picture of this, but um, the way I store my filters now is, um, well, I, all credit goes to Bill Paoloni uh, off Cloudy Nights. He showed a picture of his like kind of grab and go kit with um, some lightweight inch and a quarter eyepieces, but he had like I don't know, I would say 10 or 12 or more inch and a quarter filters in this little kit. But instead of having each filter in its individual case, he just screwed them all together in one long tube. I I saw that. Yeah, genius. Uh, so I did that recently and I can't believe how many filters I can fit in such a compact space. And, you know, you just put inch and a quarter um, like eyepiece caps on either end of it to keep uh, the dust out. And then it's pretty easy to dial up whatever filter you want. You grab your tube. I want, you know, number mm -hmm. 15 Rattan, unscrew and boom, you're, you've got it. So okay, not so a bad idea. To, you don't just start at one end and work your way through. No, no. You just kind of <laughs> take it apart in the middle and uh, <laughs> yeah, if you start at one that, end. That was, whoa. you're, you're, you're more mechanically inclined than I am. And when I first looked at it, I'm like, that's not going to work. It's going to take me forever to get to the filter in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just uh, relinquishing my own ignorance. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I do really like nebula filters. Um, I do find they work much better under, under super dark skies. And like even this summer, yeah. I was out uh, looking at, at Orion in the uh, early morning hours in end of August, beginning of September. I didn't bother using a filter. I just, I just looked at it. They had, oh, Oh, natural view. But if even if I do travel um, with a telescope, I will take at least one filter. Uh, typically, I'll take like the UHC or something yeah. with me, or sometimes the H beta. I do like the H beta an awful lot. But uh, anyway, mm. the way these all work is uh, is is they reject um, different wavelengths of light and allow different wavelengths to pass through. So some of them will allow uh, different types of nebula to come through. So um, you have nebula that fluoresce in what's called, uh, I think it's hydrogen beta, um, like that's the horsehead nebula for people that are familiar, um, or like the uh, California nebula or, or, or the butterfly nebula up around uh, Gamma Cygni. Um, and then you have uh, sort of like your more standard oxygen-3, which is uh, oxygen-3 fluorescing uh, nebula, uh, and also um, like a UHC, uh, which is just like a general like you say, broadband filter. And, and those are great for things like the Orion Nebula or other brighter nebula, like uh, the Lagoon Nebula, that sort of thing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I'm similar. I, I, I always take at least a UHC filter when we go out. Um, mm -hmm. And then sometimes a couple others, like an O3 is another nice one to keep in the kit. Uh, the H-beta one is interesting. I've owned H-beta for a long, long time, and I very rarely, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, very rarely used it, and um, I need to change that. I need to bring it out a little more often. Yeah, with the with the H-beta, you really need to hit that uh, four millimeter to uh, about seven millimeter exit pupil, and uh, and the wider the field of view, the better. Um, even even with a less expensive eyepiece and an H beta, which is how I used it for years before I got more expensive eyepieces. Now that now the filter itself cost me quite a bit of money, um, but I put the money into the filter and not the eyepiece because because it's blocking the light. You don't notice the optical imperfections. So I had like a 
I don't know, like a hundred dollar eyepiece and a $200 filter say. Um, but I was very happy. I, I can observe very happy with that combination. And I still have that eyepiece to this day. I bought it used. It's a, like a 75 degree, 30 millimeter. And uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's a nice combination. That's sort of, um, you know, sort of in, in keeping with the, some of the other stuff that we've discussed, you know, getting a little bit more mileage out of uh, less expensive gear that that definitely is, uh, is one way to do it. You don't necessarily need the most high end optics when when you're using these filters, at least that's been my experience. So yeah, yeah, no, good point. Good point. Um, so the other thing I did that night, uh, when I was observing earlier this week is, uh, I tested a new diagonal that I received. Uh, this one is a used, uh, item that I purchased a little while ago and it finally arrived. And, um, it's a Takahashi inch and a quarter prism. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason for this, like I, I already have an inch and a quarter prism. It's the, the Bader tier two or T2, uh, Zeiss prism. Yeah. Um, I wanted a second inch and a quarter because, you know, I have a, I have a couple telescope mounts actually uh, that can hold two telescopes at the same time. Um, And there are times it's not often when I like to have two telescopes running at the same time, but occasionally I do. Um, And sometimes the telescopes that I would run beside each other are both inch and a quarter telescopes. Um, So I've always wanted a second inch and a quarter diagonal uh, just for that situation. Um, so anyway, this was a good buy and I've always been a little intrigued by this Takahashi prism, um, wanting to try it, never having looked through one before. Um, so the first thing that stands out is how light it is. Um, it is about 85 grams all said and told like it it doesn't weigh very much in your hand. Um, and especially compared to the, the Bader one that I have, the Bader one is 135 grams and that's without a nose piece and without the eyepiece holder. So, you know, wow. you add those two components and you're probably pushing closer to 200 grams. Um, so, you know, this Takahashi is exceptionally light. Now, mm. how they do that is a little strange. Um, the housing of the uh, prism is like, it's a plastic of some kind. It's almost like an ABS or that old like Bakelite, you know, camera mm. plastic. It, it, it feels very durable. But it just feels strange because, you know, you typically associate plastic with like, you know, toy telescopes or like cheaper department store telescopes. Um, Hmm. So to have Takahashi, you know, package their, you know, high quality prism in plastic is just strange. But that's how they achieve some of this lightweightness. Hmm. Um, Now, the nose piece and the eyepiece holder are metal. And then there's a back plate on it that is like kind of that Takahashi blue. um, Hmm. And that's also metal. Um, so kind of interesting. Um, and then Chris, you and I have kind of, like, we definitely talked about our love for the Bader, uh, click lock and yes. how much better it is than the Takahashi. Hard to believe that. Not, system. not an expensive accessory. And I was, I actually was looking at mine again this week. Um, and not, not as expensive as what you would imagine. I, I forget what I paid for mine, but I know it was less than a hundred dollars Canadian, I think it was uh, maybe $70 American or something like that. I ended up ordering mine from Europe. Um, but man, that is a really great um, device for, for people out there that are uh, attaching two inch star diagonals to refractors. Um, I can't believe how much I, I like that, uh, that accessory. I don't like, I don't like just getting accessories just to, just to have all kinds of gadgets around but that makes the telescope easier to use in a shocking way that I was unprepared for considering I've been doing this for decades. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, agreed. good, it, it, good it, plug for Bader here. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe they're listening. We'll get a sponsorship. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> keep dreaming. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, the Takahashi compression ring has never been my favorite, uh, but the only one I've ever used is the compression ring that's on the back of the telescope. Now, now this prism has the Takahashi compression ring, but it just seems to work better than the one on the telescope. I, I, I okay. think it maybe is a little bit like the metal part that you turn, I think yeah. is a little bigger. Um, now it's still the, the, the Bader one. I, I still prefer because it's like a quarter of a rotation and your eyepiece is locked. Whereas the tack, um, you know, you're turning it a little bit more. Um, yeah. I've heard it is, can go around quite a few times. So what, what these are, maybe just to explain a little bit better for people is 
um, both the Bader and, and the TAC Prism have a compression ring system that, that Shane mentioned, but it's basically like, a, it's almost like, I don't know what you would call it, like a large donut washer type um, mechanism that rides up and down. And as, as you go in, in one direction, it actually tightens um, like perfectly like around the eyepiece or in the case of the beta that we're talking about, the, the diagonal because you're putting it on the focuser side. Um, but anywhere you attach an eyepiece or a diagonal could theoretically have one of these adapters uh, placed in, in between. Uh, you can get those from Bader. Um, but this one in Shane's prism is, uh, it's a regular nose piece that goes into the telescope, but then the part that you put your eyepiece in has this, um, well, like, what would you say it is? It's like kind of like a circular mechanism that, that just sort of rotates and then kind of squeezes the eyepiece uh, firmly in place, right? Yeah, yeah, like a traditional eyepiece holder would just have like a screw or multiple screws that you tighten, which locks the eyepiece in. This mm -hmm. has a ring that you just turn. And then that ring, uh, like you said, Chris, it just, it compresses that rubber thing on the inside around the eyepiece. And then that's how it locks the eyepiece in. Yeah. Um, the, the advantages of these compression ring systems, or at least the ad advertised advantage is that it centers the eyepiece just a little bit more accurately in your uh, diagonal. Now, I don't really think it matters a whole heck of a lot because diagonals typically don't have a lot of, you know, play no. or, or room for the eyepiece to move anyway. Um, the, the, to me, the advantage is like, especially with the Bader one is it's just quick and easy, especially if you have gloves on um, yes. than messing with those little thumb screws. And, and that is exactly it. And that's the thing I wasn't prepared for. I, you know, when I, I was researching to buy that, I really hemmed and hawed over it. Cause you know, even though it's less than a hundred bucks, it's still like a hundred bucks. And I kind of felt like, what am I getting for this almost hundred dollars or whatever it was. Um, and then when I got it, I thought like with the, the tack, I thought I'd be kind of turning it and turning it. And it says it's a click lock. I, I don't know that mine really clicks. Maybe mine's just different. It works perfectly, but I don't know that it really clicks that much. Mm -hmm. um, but like you said, and, and it looks really good. It has this beautiful rubberized ring and there is um, a bit of a mechanism. It has like a bit of a, it's not a screw, but it's a, like a, like a, piece of the mechanism kind of sticks out. It looks almost like a screw head, but it's not. Um, but like you said, with gloves, you can just kind of turn it and it only takes like about a quarter of a turn to lock it in. And one thing I like to do is I like to stand kind of side saddled to my telescope. And so I'll, I'll angle the, the diagonal. Uh, and especially if I have other people looking through it who, who are a different height than I am. And then I like to kind of unlock it, rotate the diagonal and then lock it back in. And I'm, I will do this quite a bit throughout throughout my sessions, especially like, again, if I'm sketching or something like that. And now, like you said, with the screws, those are like in a traditional uh, diagonal to uh, focus your setup. Um, you you got to take the gloves off and, and they are difficult to kind of manipulate, especially when your fingers do get cold versus the baiter. There's none of that. Uh, and it's rubber. So, you know, there's that too. Um, they've just done a beautiful job. Again, it's one of those products I never thought that I would own. I never really got it until I used it. Um, yeah, it would be cool to do like a little video of, of those so that people can kind of see what we're talking about. Anyway, keep going with your <laughs> diagonal review. Yeah, not, not much more to say. I, I used it for that brief 20-minute session uh, messing around with that sky glow light pollution filter. Mm -hmm. um, it was sharp. You know, stars were sharp. Everything was bright. Um, it, it, it seemed to work fine. Yeah. Uh, again, no AB comparison to the Bader, but you know, I think you're really splitting hairs uh, at that level. Um, Bill Paoloni did a, I, I'd say, a fairly famous review of mirror diagonals versus prism diagonals um, a few years ago. I posted all of the results on Cloudy Nights. Um, what he found uh, was that the prisms, prism diagonals, uh, were you know, in, in his words, were far better than the mirror diagonals on the planets um, in terms of showing color and contrast, um, and also excelled on a lot of the deep sky stuff. But it mm -hmm. was much, much closer to the mirror diagonal performance for that. Mm -hmm. um, now, the the prisms that he rated the best, uh, he said the Bader T2 Zeiss was by far and away the best, but that mm -hmm. the Takahashi wasn't too far behind. Like if the Bader was in the A tier, 
you know, the, the uh, tack prism was in the B plus tier. So like, you're not, you're not really going to probably see a lot of difference, at least to my eye, you know, maybe mm -hmm. uh, somebody with a, a more sensitive eye could, but um, you know, I tell you, if you want a lightweight setup, um, I don't think you can beat this thing, especially for the performance that it would give you. And, and like I say, I was a little unsure about this compression ring cause I haven't liked yeah. it in the past, but it seemed okay. Um, yep. Don't know how it will handle all of my eyepieces because some of them do have those uh, annoying undercuts, which can sometimes stump these compression ring type of uh, eyepiece holders. So mm -hmm. I'll have to see how it handles those. But um, yeah, for now, it'll it'll stay around and I'll uh, continue to use it. Yeah. And sorry, you may have said this at the, at the beginning. I think I like took a drink of water. My ears like cleared it or something. Um, <laughs> but did you say you bought it new or used or... Used, used. Okay. Um, All right. And, and, you know, here's another thing too, maybe about this thing is that even brand new, this is, you know, I think a pretty darn good buy. Like, especially mm -hmm. as soon as you put a Takahashi name on any piece of gear, it seems like the markup uh, is far greater than just about any other, you know, mm -hmm. comparable piece. Whereas this thing, I believe Canadian is like $200 ish or just like maybe $210 sort of thing. So for, um, you know, one of the better prisms that you can buy, um, you know, to, to be able to get that for $200, I think is actually a pretty good value. Mm -hmm. hmm. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in that uh, prism diagonal. I, I've long wanted one uh, for the reasons you mentioned, such as the uh, lightweight and uh, reported uh, good planetary performance. Um, I don't really have a super low power one and a quarter. I always thought that I would get the 35 Masuyama and pair mm. that with, with this, but you blew through that, <laughs> through that one earlier in the year and we have lots of reviews on that. Um, and it didn't, it didn't pan out, uh, though your pan optic did. Um, mm. yeah, but I, I, I think at some point I'd like to try to get a good, uh, 30 or to 35 millimeter, uh, plossal or, or something like that. And then, uh, you know, and, and then have that diagonal, um, you know, just, just to have a slightly different and, and lighter, uh, setup. Um, yeah, cool. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How was your week, Chris? Very busy, very busy. Yeah. <laughs> so non-astronomical science, uh, makes my life very busy. So I, I work at a study at, at a university and, uh, we've, uh, gone back up to full speed the past, uh, couple weeks uh, could make me a little bit more of an armchair armchair astronomer for uh, for a couple months here anyway. So uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, but it's funny, you know, we we do this podcast, and I, you know, early on, uh, and people have noticed this when you listen to the podcast, the sound quality uh, for me anyway isn't that great um, in the early episodes because I had my uh, microphone just just on a tiny little stand beside my computer and and so um, I was too far away and it was too easy for me to to move around and and that that microphone was stationary so I put this big arm um, articulating arm and I put the microphone on that and I rigged up with like a pop filter and some other wiring and stuff like that and so people who listen to the podcast don't see this but I think the sound is has been a lot better uh, since since those first few episodes um, but when I teach my class at the university, uh, people can then see this giant thing. I thought I had it out of the shot because <laughs> apparently the, sh like my video display, uh, is cropped and I didn't realize this. So they can actually see me outlined with this giant mechanical arm. Um, so people are always like, what is that? <laughs> like, you know, what is going on there? <laughs> so, oh yeah, I do a podcast. So that's why I have this. Uh, sent you a couple pictures. Um, yeah, you, you can tweet those out if you want. I don't know. What did well, you think sure. about that, that idea? So what I did is I'm getting a telescope together for, for my nephew. And I've talked about this in past episodes. It's an 80 millimeter F5 refractor. This is a low power, inexpensive refractor. I, I have other ones. I love 80 millimeter F5 refractors because they give a really wide field of view. Um, so they, they, pretty much com compete with low power binoculars, um, but just have a little bit more oomph. You get, mount them on a tripod, so they're more stable than that. And, uh, and they don't require much of a tripod to be mounted on. 
And then they have this huge field of view, easy to find stuff, um, which is great for a beginner. And then you can actually take them up to, oh, maybe like 80 or 90 power, not quite a hundred power, I, I don't think. Um, but at, at about 80 power, which is kind of where I'm maxing this one out at, um, you, you really get to see like Saturn's rings and the bands on Jupiter. And you can see um, all the moons of Jupiter quite well. And you can see uh, moon transits on, on Jupiter. So, so there's that kind of stuff. But what I did is I bought three eyepieces uh, for my nephew that go with this telescope. And, you know, if people are new to astronomy, um, it, it can be a little bit daunting. You have these eyepieces and they're measured in millimeters. The telescopes are measured in millimeters and inches. And then trying to figure out the high and the low power. I, I don't know, Shane, have you ever, ever experienced that with beginners in the high and the low power confusion business? Yeah, for sure. Because it's, it's, it's kind of backwards. You know, we're used to like high numbers, meaning high magnification, but like a 25 millimeter eyepiece is far less power than a five millimeter eyepiece. And I think that is confusing to some people. And I like your idea an awful lot. Yeah. So what I did is I just took a tiny piece of uh, tape, just like masking tape. And I put low power on the 32 millimeter plossal. I put mid power on the 12 millimeter um, 60 degree wide field that I got from Astronomics called an Astrotech Paradigm EV, which is a wonderful beginner eyepiece. I think they're really, really great. And then I put high power on the five millimeter Astrotech Paradigm EV. And so when he gets these, instead of just, and then I also wrote it on the boxes in case he uses them a lot. I think, I think probably if he used them enough to wear this off, then he's going to know that the five millimeter is the high power and the other ones are the other ones, eh? But, yeah, uh, yeah. but I also wrote them on the boxes so that, so that if they do ever wear off, you can just look and say, okay, the five millimeter is the high power, whatever. But um, I wasn't, wasn't too worried. I think by that point uh, he, he's going to know which is the, which is, which is what, but, um, and then I can kind of give those instructions, use the low power for finding things and for wide things in the sky. And some things are going to look better through that, um, than the higher power anyway. And I think that's the one thing that most people have a little bit trouble getting over. Um, there's always the association between the telescope and the quote unquote power of the telescope. Um, but that's in many ways, really secondary, because like, for example, if you're looking at something like the Andromeda galaxy, you really want a wide field of view and as much light gathering power as, as you, can, you can get out of an instrument. And with the 80 millimeter F5, you get about a four or so degree field of view. And that's about the full extent of the Andromeda. Um, but especially for a beginner, somebody who's getting going, um, that's probably gonna give them about the best view. And then maybe like the mid power once they've kind of get it in there centered, but just seeing it in its full extent like that is really, uh, in my opinion, the, the pleasure of seeing the Andromeda galaxy and kind of stretching across the field of view and what you can see uh, yeah. in that scenario. You know, you, you mentioned something that I just wanna key on here for a second, Chris. Sure. Um, one of the things that I get asked uh, when somebody finds out that I'm into astronomy, you know, at mm -hmm. work or wherever it might be, one of the first questions is how many telescopes, or do you have a telescope? You know, the answer is yes. Uh, the second <laughs> question is, well, how much magnification do you yeah. do? And, yeah. and it's a hard thing to explain to somebody that that yeah. really isn't like, yeah, there are times you want high power, but like, that's not the, the indicator of a quality telescope necessarily. No. Like there's a lot of times that, you know, you and I are out observing where we might not go over 25 or 30 times magnification because yep. we want that real wide field view. Mm -hmm. um, and some things are just far more pleasing that way. In fact, yep. there's a lot of nights where um, I'm not taking my 31 millimeter eyepiece out of the diagonal. It just stays there the whole night because I love the low power wide field view. And I'll, I'll hop in and interrupt your interruption on my anyway, and, <laughs> and say that I'll loop back to the beginning, which then this, this is sort of, un, I shouldn't say it's sort of unplanned. This is completely unplanned as, as most of this podcast really is, but you were talking about the alpha, alpha Perseus uh, cluster, mm -hmm. the lot 20 at the beginning. Well, there's a perfect example. You want to have like that. Uh, I don't know, like at least a two and a half or three degree field of view or, or, yeah, or like yeah. with the uh, 80 millimeter F5 with 32 millimeter plossal in there, you got to go four degree field of view. Well, that's what you want. If you use like a hundred power on that, you're going to see a few stars. If you use 200 power on that, you're going to see maybe a couple of stars of that cluster or maybe a few more. But um, 
you know, you, you're really not getting um, the view of the cluster at that point. The, the best mm-hmm. view of that cluster is through uh, the lowest power. Really, the only place where where power uh, comes into play is is for um, you know, kind of if if you're making a series of observations, and in my opinion, more advanced observations, or if you're looking at particular objects like maybe uh, planetary nebula or planets themselves, um, that that's where power comes into play. But but really, you know, I think we've talked about this lots in the past. Really, the kind of the the best powers for the planets anyway is 125 to about 150 power, um, and that's that's kind of where the planetary power zone uh, really lives for the, for the majority of those observations. And then for uh, deep sky and, and wide field observing, finding stuff, and then, then kind of making those mid power observations like that, you know, around 20, 25 power, like you said, to, to maybe upwards of, of getting close to 50 or 60 power. And that's kind of, that, that's kind of where we live in those, in those power ranges for, for the objects that, that we're looking at anyway, like a cluster um, will look beautiful at like 50 power, but, you know, take that to 200 power and you're just going to see a small little section of it, right? You're really going to lose the whole context of the object. So, so there's that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry to take you off track. No, no, actually I was kind of done with that. So what I did is I just marked those eyepieces. I got them back in their uh, respective boxes. So um, one thing I did is instead of having typically what, what you'll see in a beginner's kit or even, even people that are making recommendations is they'll say, well, you get one or two eyepieces or whatever, and then like a Barlow lens, which is an amplifier. And I'm just like, man, like throwing a Barlow lens at a, at a newcomer to astronomy is, I, I think it's a little bit cruel. <laughs> like, you know, let's just make it easy on them, considering that a good Barlow is going to run you as much as that third eyepiece anyway. Just, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. get that third eyepiece. And you and I always say, Um, and there's a little bit of a rule to this. I think we went over this, uh, in in our eyepiece conversations, really, you just need about three, three power. So for this 80 millimeter F5, I got a 32 millimeter plus, which gives like, I don't know, like around 12 power. So something like that. And then, um, what I did is I went to a 12 millimeter, which gives a good mid power. I think it gives something like 40 odd power and then a high power, which gives, uh, about 80 power, I guess, maybe not quite 40 power for the, for the 12, but anyway, it doesn't really matter. I'm not that focused on the powers. As, as you can see, I just know that those, those are really the key powers for an 80 millimeter F5 Acromat. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I honestly can't think of a scenario for that telescope where you would really want any other power. I think that telescope really maxes out at about 80 power. On the best nights, you can probably take it. I think I took it to, I was playing around the yard with a, with a couple Barlows and I was able to get about a hundred odd power out of it on a really good night. Um, but that, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work for me. And even in my use of that telescope, and I have an 80 millimeter F5 Acromat that I've uh, worked with you on. And, and I probably wouldn't do that myself. So I'm not going to give that to a beginner and, and create the expectation that that's how they should be using the instrument. So packing up the rest of it, it's a little bit sad because I actually really like this one. I bought two, um, two different makes and models. I bought a Skywatcher and I bought a Mead Adventure Scope. I think the Adventure Scope is actually out of um, production now. The one thing I like about the Mead is it's beige and I just like really oddly colored telescopes. I don't know why I... I like color. I'm one of those people. I like pink. I would love a pink house. I live in a beige house, of course. Um, but, uh, but that refractor from Skywatcher, I thought just a little bit better and I can work on it a little bit better. The other one, I kind of had to get you to unscrew with, with your great, great might or whatever, because it was really just jammed and uh, it's a little bit more difficult to work on, but I'm going to send this one down. If there's a problem with that, I can go down whenever I go down and, and visit him to, uh, to make an adjustment. Um, yeah. And I just, just thought the mechanics on it were just, they just were a little bit more refined uh, than the mead and I got it for $30. So uh, pretty good. And I got the AZ five mount or AZ five mount um, from Skywatcher as well. Uh, and that works perfectly with the 80 millimeter F five. I just think that is just a match made in heaven. I mean, it is just a beautiful, beautiful combination. Although Skywatcher doesn't sell it like that. You can get the 100 millimeter, but not the 80 millimeter F5, which is a little bit unfortunate. I think so, Skywatcher. So strange. Yeah. It, it is a little bit strange. I think that, I don't know. I, I just think that uh, the 80 millimeter F5, even though the cost of that package 
would be minimally less. I think that the 80 millimeter F5 refractor is, is a unique telescope all on its own. And I think every observer really should own one. So, all right. Um, let's see. I did want to say this really quick though. I uh, did try the 100 millimeter refractor on the EZ5. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I, I wanted to do that before I let it go so that I could at least report that, uh, that it works. I've seen that it works. It works, handled it well. Yeah. And uh, I think if somebody was going to buy it, though, get it with the steel tripod, 100%. I tried on a couple different tripods. The steel tripod is the one to go with if you're going to get that mount and have heavier telescopes. But I think it's a, I think it's a great mount. Was there, the, was there any vibration at high magnifications? Yeah, I on the on the lesser tripods there is for sure. On the steel tripod, it's great, you know. Okay. okay. And 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 typically you buy it with this. I think when you buy it in North America, you have to get it with a steel tripod. But if I was gonna use the 80 millimeter F5 on it, I would never get the steel tripod because um, you're just destroying the portability of it. The EZ5 mm -hmm. is is a light, reasonably light and portable. Mount. I think we use about six pounds, and then. Um, the 80 millimeter F5 is a three pound telescope. So there's no point in getting like a, whatever it is, 16 pound steel tripod for it. It's just way overkill. The mm -hmm. 80 millimeter F5 on that mount, you can put on virtually any tripod. Um, anyway, I, I have like the lightest weight Skywatcher tripod I'm sending down with it. Uh, it's, it's a nice combo. So <clears throat> we're gonna chat about the giveaway. Now. Yeah, you, you you started off with the title of this episode, and we haven't <laughs> talked people, anything about it yet. For people hanging in there with us, um, so during the intro, yeah, I mentioned this, uh, and just so people know, this is the RASC Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. This is basically like the big astronomy club or society in Canada. Shane and I are both members. Uh, he belongs to the local club. I'm what's called a national member, which I don't like how they changed that. They didn't ask us for, for our opinions on this. We used to be called unattached members, which I loved. I still refer to myself as an unattached member because I kind of think that's funny. Um, but anyway, I write for the handbook. And as such, I'm supposed to get, uh, uh, it's like a pre-copy or an editing copy for me to work on. And I'm supposed to get that before members. And then I get my regular membership copy because I'm a paying member and I don't get paid for doing the handbook. So pretty much the only thing I get is this advanced copy. That's kind of what's, what's in it for me. And, uh, and just the joy of sharing astronomy with, with all kinds of people around the world. We sell, I don't know, like 15 or 20,000 copies of these each year. It's an annual publication. So then of course, Shane gets his copy before me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow I vaulted up the priority <laughs> listing there. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I know they're having some trouble with publishing because, you know, I, I get informed of all this. So I'm waiting patiently and the weeks are <laughs> turning into like a month, right? So I wrote them and I'm like, I not only did I not get my advanced copy, I never got any copy. And uh, and I said, you know, uh, friend in the city already already had his copy for a number of weeks so i think something's something's gone wrong somewhere um so they shipped me out they purred a pretty shipped me out a copy and of course all three copies arrive on the same day they arrived i think like thursday uh all together <laughs> you're you know two in the mailbox and one on my front step like completely from separate um mailings but anyway uh, so I end up with this third copy of the RASC Observer's Handbook, and I thought, what am I going to do with this? So typically what I do is I, I, I use, usually I use both copies, usually, but sometimes what I'll do is if I get an individual who's particularly interested in my class uh, in astronomy and, and maybe looking for more advancement and, and more reading, uh, I might gift them a copy. So I do that from time to time. Um, but then of course my class is now, uh, online and we're, we're not doing any of this in-person stuff. And, and the people who take my class are more distributed than ever. And so I kind of would feel a little bit awkward, um, trying to give this to one individual just cause they live close to me or whatever. And I kind of feel a bit uh, odd about that. Uh, and I can make use of two copies, three copies I cannot make use of. So I'm like, Hmm, 
maybe we should give it away, Shane. What do you think? I love the idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should uh, give it away. I think it's um, a great opportunity to, uh, you know, expose some people uh, to, you know, different details or different things about astronomy too, because, you know, for anybody that's never looked at the handbook, um, I'll tweet out a picture just of the, uh, the, the table of contents. Like, I don't know if there's as much of a comprehensive annual guide as this that tells you, you know, a lot of the things that we talk about on this show, but, you know, let's just say, for example, you're, uh, you know, you're interested in, um, you know, the brightest minor planets. Well, it'll tell you mm -hmm. all about that or, you know, fireballs, how to uh, identify them, how to report them. Like there's just so many different topics in here. And, you know, the other neat thing about it is, you know, on the next page after the table of contents is, is two pages or is it three pages? It's two pages of the contributors. There's so many different people that, mm -hmm. you know, write to make this handbook um, that it's also interesting to see like just the different um, specialties or the different areas of knowledge and how they write about it. It's uh, it's a really neat book. And um, I'm, you get I think it's awesome. You oh, get one of my favorite lists in there, which is, I, I have a few different sections, but um, what I do is I, I have a list called Wide Field Wonders, which is for mm -hmm. um, sort of low power wide field instruments. It is not an easy list though. I think actually the Alpha Perseus moving group is in there, if I think about it. Um, okay. But uh, there are some easy ones. There are some super challenging ones for binoculars and small telescopes. And then um, the other thing I do um, is I, is I collaborate with my friend Randall and we create, uh, what's called a feature. I didn't look, I hope it's in there. Um, but we yeah, write it a, is, yeah. it is okay. Good stuff. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure we were, we write a feature every year, uh, that tends to focus either on a region, a sky or a constellation. And we walk you through, um, uh, how and what, uh, of interest, uh, you might be able to, uh, to see in that portion of the sky. Um, so that's in there, in there as well. Um, and then all of our observing lists are in there. I haven't done much with them them recently, but I used to be the National Observing Chair in Canada. And, uh, and I, I sort of got those in, into the final uh, form uh, that they're in now working with uh, former editor Dave, Dave Chapman, who, who really uh, has been a, been a guiding light in, in getting some of this stuff uh, organized in the handbook. Um, so we, we really work together on that. Uh, but yeah, so th this is a book with, with a lot of influence from yours truly to say, to say the least. So uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think we should give it away, Shane. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the mechanics of this. Um, people probably would have to write us some sort of email. I'll let you, I'll let you give the, 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 it's not going to be a competition. I was going to say rules of the competition. It's not a competition. Um but they'll probably have to at least send an email in and, and maybe we'll run it until January 1st, give people lots of time to, to send us emails or, over the next couple of weeks. And then um, probably what we'll have to do is do a draw live on the show and then <laughs> a live recording on the show and then, uh, and then email you to get your address or whatever. And, and I'll, I'll just figure out a way to get it to you. So what are the rules? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so email us, uh, actualastronomy at gmail.com. Um, one entry per person will do, like you said, Chris, just a random draw. There's no real competition here. Just uh, somebody will, will be the lucky recipient. Yeah. Um, but what we would like to hear about is... this is I'm interested to hear because I didn't really have this part, how to do this part. So how, what, what should they write us? Yeah. So the title of this thing is Observer's Handbook. 2021. Ooh. The key word there is observers in my mind. So, um, and that's kind of what we talk about. So what I would like is uh, send us an email, but um, send us either a written log of an observation that you've done, uh, maybe a sketch that you've done, or maybe, good? or yeah, yeah. Uh, or maybe an object um, that you want to observe or that you're planning to observe, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the near future. Um, we just love okay. hearing about observing. So that's, yeah. uh, that's what people should send us. And, uh, you know, we may, we may even, I don't know, depending on the, the, uh, popularity of this, if we get enough, uh, submissions, maybe we'll even have a future episode where we'll just talk about the observation logs or sketches that we've received yeah. and, uh, you know, just make a show out of it too. So I think, I think, I think you be said fun. one entry per person. 
Yeah, you can send us multiple emails, but you know, if you send us 10 emails, we'll still just, you know, count that as one entry uh, so that, um, you know, it's fair for everybody. And then I think on, uh, we'll record January the 3rd. Um, and at that point, we'll do the random draw. And yeah. then, yeah, we'll contact the winner to get their address. And then off goes the handbook. Yeah. So it's, so it's clear it's not a competition. Um, mm-hmm. This, this podcast is meant to be really anti-competitive <laughs> by nature because, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the nature of observing, really. Um, there's no, like, person who's, like, sort of, quote, unquote, the better observer. I, I always find it funny when we, because, and that's, that's not just my opinion. That's just a basic opinion of uh, sort of the observing philosophy, uh, if you can call it that. Um, and I remember like we had this writer who was out with us once and, and the person said, Oh, I almost feel like an observer or whatever. I'm like, well, you are. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you're right here. You're observing with us. That, that's you've met the qualifications, you know, congratulations. So yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty flat. Cool. All right. Um, yeah. And with that, yeah, people should, should write in. Uh, I'm excited about that. I think this will be fun. And then um, I did want to mention that we were talking about nebula filters. There's a whole big section in the observer's handbook with nebula filters, what each filter does has the graphs for all the filters um, and all kinds of analysis of them to kind of really give you that. And that's kind of what the observer's handbook does. Uh, and although it's sort of a strange publication because some of the information doesn't change year to year, uh, it does have this big section in the sky month to month, right in the middle. And we lean on that pretty heavy for, uh, well, I do for my class as well as for our, our what's up in the sky each month. So you, so you get kind of a, a bit of a copy for that as well. So yeah, well, that sounds like fun. Shane, anything else to add for this episode 74? No, that's everything for me, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to ask us questions or leave feedback, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy, or you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast with a donation, uh, we are selling merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash actual astronomy. We wish you all clear and dark skies. <laughs>